This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What has helped me the most in grief has been one-on-one counseling. Being part of a suicide prevention community. What has helped me the most has been speaking about it. My name is Virginia. Robert. Haley. Hi, my name is Talinda. My name is David. I'm Dr. Jennifer Ashton. And this is Life After Suicide. This week on Life After Suicide, two very personal discussions, one with my colleague, James Longman, and the other with Dr. John Draper. First, James travels the world for ABC News covering all types of human drama. U.S.-backed forces have been on the edge of victory against ISIS in Syria for weeks, but the final assault has yet to begin. Paris, the city of lights, still dazed after a massive blaze ravaged historic Notre Dame Cathedral. It's the news the world was waiting for. Duchess Meghan is pregnant. Kensington Palace announcing the Duke and Duchess of Sussex will welcome a child in the spring. We're going to talk about the death by suicide of James Longman's grandfather, father, and the troubling times James had finding help for himself. He asked, is mental illness hereditary? That's up first. James, you and I are fortunate enough to work together and be work friends and colleagues, um, but we're unfortunate to be members of a club that no one wants to be in, which is... um, We both have loved ones that we've lost to suicide. You've been public and very brave and courageous about sharing your story, Um, but it started with your grandfather, right? Tell tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to my father's father. And uh, one day uh, when my dad, I think, must have been in his early 20s, he went out into the garden in the home that they lived in here in the UK and found that his father had shot himself and your dad um, found him my father found him yeah exactly uh, i never knew him this was well it was about 20 years before i was born and there's been a lot of secrecy in my family about it you know this is not something that you know people want to talk about now let alone you know all these years ago and there was a suggestion that he was ill and so wanted to end his life early but still now i don't know the full story of why he ended his life but i know that it made a big impact on my father who then, 20 years later, when he was 42, ended his life. And so that was, that was obviously the thing that impacted me greatest. But I then look at my life, I look at my family, and I go, wow, I have a grandfather who killed himself, I have a father who killed himself. And then when I was in my 20s, I went through a really serious bout of depression. And so, obviously, these questions around, you know, how much we inherit you know of our parents in these ways in these dark in these dark depressive episodes uh i'm i'm i've kind of been obsessed with ever since um and it's kind of this looming tragedy that has really marked my family for now three generations um but i'm hoping obviously to buck the trend i mean that sounds really dark but my interest is in working out how you don't go down those paths when people you love did and what have you learned from that? Because that's something that, you know, when when my f- children's father, my ex-husband, Rob, 
uh, killed himself, that was one of the first things that I started to become terrified of is that, you know, we know that it is a risk factor. In, and in medicine, you know, there are risk factors to diseases. There are risk factors to fatal diseases. It's not the whole picture, but it's a piece of the puzzle. And I think about that every day. Um, so how, how has that process been for you? Because do you, there must be days where you walk around and you think, am I a ticking time bomb? You know, and as, as you've said, will you repeat um, the past family history? So what have you done to try to prevent that from happening? Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who have suffered with depression will say to you that there is an inevitability about what they're feeling. And there's a you're kind of being pushed down a road and that it's this invisible force that's pushing you. And when you get in your head and you think, well, my, my dad did it, my my grandfather did it. Am I destined for this? You know, that's you can't help but feel that way. Um, because depression in and of itself puts you in that frame of mind of inevitability. So when you have the proof to look back to in your family, you have this kind of double whammy, if you like. I mean, it's what I've wanted to do is ask questions because I've been fortunate enough to be able to research and ask the questions that my father wasn't able to do. And certainly his, his father doesn't seem like it, he was able to do and really talk about it so much more than either of them were able to do. And that's part of the reason why I did uh, a documentary on it, because I wanted to go and talk to people who knew what they were talking about around this idea of whether or not there is a, a kind of a, a natural inevitability to us or we can if we can be nurtured in a different way, that whole nature of you nurtured a babe. Mm -hmm. And what I found out, at least from this one department, this research uh, uh, facility that I went to here in the UK at King's College University, was that they have discovered genes in people who have depression it's like a grouping of genes which are common in people who have depression that's not a causal link but it is a it's a correlation between people who have depression there are there are 20 or so genes apparently for those who suffer with bipolar disorder and 108 for those with schizophrenia and that's what my father had mm. um, and so to go and look for the scientific answers that for me has been really really um, satisfying and what other questions did you ask, James? I mean, wh why is kind of the overarching one? That's the macro question. But what were some of the micro questions? How much is it science? Oh, sorry. How much is it like a, a nature versus nurture? That's the one I've always been asking. Like, is it like the fact of me knowing that my dad killed himself? Mm -hmm. Is that more powerful than the genes he gave me? I've always wanted to know the answer to that question. No one seems to be able to answer it yet. But the fact that there is, there are efforts to do that and there are places you can go to talk about those things, that for me has given me uh, an amazing, uh, an amazing um, you know, outlet. And also to, to, to talk to the people who are trying to find ways to get out of their darkness through ways other than medication because that's one thing you know when i was going through a depressive out you know my depressive kind of few years when i was in my kind of late 20s it was the first thing that you do you go to see the doctor and they give you citalopram or a number of these other drugs and um you know you want to say look i don't want to be on these drugs for the rest of my life and so the, you know for me the questions were, were what else can i do outside of taking drugs to get through this mm -hmm. um and some of the most extraordinary stuff i found out um from one research department where 
they were trying to really understand what was going on in the brain when it came when it comes to the connectivity in different parts of the brain and particularly assessing what the feeling of guilt is and how much depressed people feel guilt because i think it was freud who said that a depressed person will feel guilt more acutely than anyone else when we are upset by something rather than go to anger and blame other people we go to guilt and blame ourselves right and understanding that and getting through that that's been really helpful for me so there's an interesting uh article, I, I call it one of the landmark articles on suicide that appeared in Newsweek magazine. Um, I think it was 2013. It might have been 2015. I'm sure you've read it. And it talks about uh, kind of the cluster of situations and emotions and conditions that have to exist for someone to be at high risk for suicide. Um, and one of them is it's kind of an offshoot or relative of guilt, which is feeling like a burden. Yeah. Um, and the other one is um, not belonging and not having a fear of death and not having a hope for the future. And where those things overlap in a Venn diagram, if you will, um, in that center part is what puts someone at very high risk for suicide. Because there are times where uh, we can all feel some of those things, but we usually don't feel all of those things at the same time. And I always say, you know, I'm I'm half Jewish and half Italian, so I'm homozygous for the guilt gene. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. it's what we do right. <laughs> in my yeah. religion and my ethnic background. Um, but but did you feel when you were very depressed, guilty for feeling depressed? What did you feel guilty about? I tell you, there was a day when I really hit rock bottom, and I've never felt like it since. Thank God. But I'll tell you what happened. I was at work and I, I started to hyperventilate. I got a panic attack and I'd never had that before. I didn't know what was going on. I was breathing very, very sharply and I started crying at my desk. And it really, it came on like, you know, when you get a headache, it was mm -hmm. like that. There was no warning. I just suddenly felt it. I got up from my desk and I, I, I got the phone and I called. There's a, like a non-emergency number you can call here in the UK, which can tell you about the nearest clinic to go to. And I did that, luckily. I went, I kind of ran. It was very dramatic. It was kind of a, a bit of a filmic moment. I was like crying in the rain, running through London. Um, and I got to this clinic and it was, it's like it was supposed to be a 10-minute walk away. And I got there and they said, no, it's not here. That place was shut down six months ago. We've had big cuts to mental health services in this country. And I, they, she gave me another number, the lady behind the desk, and, and I, I tried calling that, and it didn't work. And then she told me to get out because I wasn't allowed to make calls in the hall where I was standing. And I went outside. I sat on the pavement on the edge of the sidewalk. And for about 10 minutes, I seriously contemplated walking out in front of traffic. I've never, I've never felt like that since. But in that moment... I wanted to stop feeling the way I was feeling. And I really didn't think that anyone was going to be able to help me. I didn't feel that anyone could possibly have the answers to how I was feeling. It just didn't, it didn't, it just seemed like the easiest thing to do. And so I, but then I was almost like 10 minutes later, I was like scared of how I'd felt. Mm and shocked at it and then the feeling of guilt and shame that i had even thought that mm -hmm. and 
I had called a friend. I texted a friend earlier in the day, and she had finally got back to me because she was at work. She came to get me, and we sat there together. And lucky for her, you know, I just I, I, it's a really difficult thing to explain. But I have so much in my life. I'm so privileged. I, there are so many things from the outside you can see going on where you'd think to yourself, "Well, why would you possibly want to do that to yourself?" But I was not looking at my life in that way. My life for me was. Was useless, and I felt that telling other people about how I was feeling was just the same old story, the same old crap. Like I didn't, they weren't going to be able to give me any answers because I'd gone through this a hundred times before. I'd spoken to my friends about feeling depressed, and it wasn't helping me at all. And this must be the best way out in those in in that moment. Mm. And it was just, I can't. It's a really difficult thing to try to explain. The color also seemed to drain from. What I was looking at, it, the the day felt darker. I, it's a really weird. Physically, the light seemed darker wow. in in my eyes. I've never heard anyone describe it that way. I think that's so powerful. It was just, yeah. It was just. It's a really hard. It's like your senses are numbed. I couldn't, I couldn't taste anything. I couldn't really smell anything. My uh, my sight, I, everything had been dulled, and I just. It was like, the only answer in front of me, the only piece of clarity I had. Was if I ended my life, then it, then that would somehow provide the clarity. Mm. I yeah, I just that must I can't have been explain. Terrifying. It. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I cried a lot. I sat there with my friend on the side of the road in central London, and I just cried with her. And she's amazing. Like my friend Melissa, she went back into the into the clinic and she gave them hell. She was like, "Have you any idea what you just did?" Like, she's she's a brilliant human being, right. and she took me to the doctor and stuff. But you know, I just and it and it also. What, I, what happened to me afterwards as well was I realized that this is something which can affect anybody. Like it just, I have so many privileges in my life. And yet in that moment I was alone and it, it none of it meant anything. Right. I was just me. I want to embarrass you for a minute, James, <laughs> um, because you're so incredibly humble and modest. But uh, for the people listening who may not be familiar with your unbelievable work. Um, first of all, you're the ABC News foreign correspondent um, since 2017. You are based in London, but you, of course, go all over the world to some incredibly dangerous places, most recently um, within visual sight of uh, some ISIS activity. You are fluent in Arabic and French. Um, you've written extensively for um, several newspapers in the UK, incredibly prolific journalist. Uh, you have a graduate degree in Arabic. From, you're a real underachiever, James. <laughs> from the School of Oriental and African Studies, and you have a Master's of Science in Comparative Politics from LSE, from the London School of Economics. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, and I forgot, you are model gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nice. <laughs> nice. It's like, it, it, to say you're a triple threat is doesn't even begin to, you know, cut it. But you touched on something that that I would like to hear more from you on, which is that you yourself recognize that you have a lot, you have achieved a lot, but all of that did not matter when you were sitting on the curb crying, think about thinking about walking into oncoming traffic. And I think we hear that so often, right? When, when a celebrity um, dies by suicide, everyone says, oh, but they had so much money. Yeah. Or they were so famous or they were they were just about to launch another show or another, or another movie or none of that matters. Right. No, it, it just 
because, well, first of all, I think a lot of people are very conscious of their own faults, and I'm certainly conscious of mine. I'm very, very self aware in the sense that I like to push myself and I know I'm my I'm my biggest critic so there's that I think that does play a, a role and I think a lot of people who are high achievers maybe are playing with that are playing with fire in that funny way because you can be a real 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 really hard on yourself and in, in, in a bad way but when you when you reach that level of, of depression it, 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 you know it, literally nothing else matters and how you see yourself is totally different to how the world sees you it, it, there is it's it's like a 180 flip and there is nothing that anyone can say there is no reason or ration the thing is is that it's it, you know depression is an irrational feeling because it is something which is brought on by our psychology and and, and our and our physiology and the makeup of our bodies so to try and rationalize with something which is irrational is futile so to say oh yes well you have a lot of money and you're very successful and you're very beautiful that doesn't mean anything because that's an effort to try to rationalize with something which is irrational, irrational. so for, and, and I know that now, but obviously at that time, I didn't have that clarity. So what kind of safety valves, if you will, have you put into place uh, in your world to prevent or, you know, or safeguard against that something like that happening again in the future? Talking, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> just talking. I mean, it has been the, the savior, saving grace for me to to spend time talking and not I don't mean uh, you don't have to start a podcast you don't have to write in the newspaper you don't have to make documentaries talk to your friends talk to people you love and it's like a magic trick I can't even explain it It doesn't even matter what the thing is you're saying the act of talking is the valve itself it doesn't matter what the words are and that for me has been the thing and after that moment from then on I'm lucky I'm blessed with great friends who who knew to talk to me about what was happening in my life and how I was feeling. And since then, that's what I've been doing. And that's, that's how I manage it. Can we talk about your personal life? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. you, you are in a an very committed, openly gay relationship mm-hmm. um, with a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I would like to hear your thoughts on the increased risk of suicide in the LGBTQ community, because that is significant. Um, and second... I'd like to hear how, if you're okay with sharing this, mm-hmm. how the two of you have talked about suicide and um, mental illness. In, in other, is it the same as, you know, let's say you had a, a life-threatening food allergy and you would say to the people around you, you know, by the way, I'm deathly <laughs> allergic to nuts. So if you see me with my lips swelling up, you'll know I'm having an allergic reaction. <laughs> Please give me epinephrine. Yeah. Is, is that similar to the conversations Um, that you've had with your partner so that, you know, he can help safeguard your mental health as well? So, yeah. So, well, with LGBTQ people, I feel like one of the huge issues around, you know, when you when you know, one of the things you said it yourself, when you're isolated, that's one of the precursors. If you're feeling isolated, you can start to get into a a dark spiral. And then suicide seems the only way out for a lot of young people who are struggling with their sexuality being isolated is basically just the preeminent feature of their life and the more 
we can all do to try to reach out to people who are do, who are struggling in that way, the better. Because, as you say, it is a crisis, um, and I think the the, the the point about isolation is the big one. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and as it when it comes to Alex, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that it's been a, quite a journey for me because. I haven't really been in a major in a big relationship before meeting him. I was I came out to my mother when I was about 23, 24. I have a Catholic background, sort of slightly complicated when it comes to kind of coming out to people. And so I think what I've learned with him is that just to tell him how I'm feeling all the time and it just sounds really kind of banal, mm-hmm. but on on so many levels over and above my depression it just makes us a happier couple if i'm telling him how what i think about things and when we f- when we first got together after about 6 months we had our big like 6 month chat which i think a lot of people have when they get Oh i thought you were going to say 6 month fight <laughs> <laughs> Well let's just we could call it a fight if you like it was like a, a So you're so like, civilized in the UK yeah, you call six, it a chat we call it a brawl discussion. yeah <laughs> and i said to him what i'm going to need to be able to do is say things to you which you might find difficult to hear because you might take it to heart their judgments of you but they're not they're just how i'm feeling and if i can be as open as i possibly can with you and know that you can hear that from me then we're going to be okay and he is the most generous passionate kind individual and so patient i mean you've got to be patient if your mm-hmm. partner disappears for months on end but more than that patient with me and having those moments where i just need him to listen to me going off and that's how it works it's just it's like relationship 101 right just right. communicate we'll take a quick break in this conversation we'll be back in a minute hey i'm andy mitchell a new york times best-selling author and i'm sabrina kohlberg a morning television producer we're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. You mentioned your work and being away for months on end. You do incredibly dangerous work as a foreign correspondent, incredibly dangerous. Is there some addiction to that adrenaline rush that, you know, you, I'll tell you, it's funny as a, as a physician and my specialty is a surgical one. um, When I used to do big operations, hysterectomies and um, pelvic surgery on women, I used to feel in my mind, like when people would say to me, oh, Jen, would you ever want to go bungee jumping or jump out of a plane? And I would say, uh, no, I don't need that kind of adrenaline rush because I hold other people's lives in my hands yeah. on a regular basis. I don't need to feel mm-hmm. like I'm flirting with death with myself. Um, but do you feel an element of that? I mean, do you feel that... When you're at work and you're in places where, I mean, literally, we watch you here at the New York ABC headquarters and a lot of people are cringing, getting nervous for you. Are you addicted to that? When I get close to Meghan and Harry or when I'm in Syria? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Equally dangerous. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, look, I think a lot of people in our profession live for a little bit of adrenaline, right? 
Um, for me, I think that it goes to f- I'm my happiest when I feel like my life has meaning. And if I'm doing stuff which I feel is important and, you know, for instance, I mean, you're talking about having been in Syria. That's the end of the so-called Islamic State. You know, this was a seminal moment in history. And so for me, actually, it helps my mental health to feel like I'm doing something which matters. And I think that has been that is actually the way I see it. And I I don't take we don't take unnecessary risks. And it's also been a learning curve for me having Alex at home, because I've never really had anyone at home like wondering if I'm okay. Mm. Other than of course, I, you know, I love my friends and everything, but like a significant person mm-hmm. who you have to take into consideration when you're when you're making a decision about where to go in a place like Syria. But I absolutely feel that those things give me purpose and give me meaning. And if you talk to people who are who have suffered with mental health issues, it's about that sense of purpose and meaning that they feel that sometimes they lack. And I know my father lacked that Mm -hmm. and wanted it desperately. And I feel lucky that I have it. And I've identified the thing that gives me purpose. That's amazing. And, and, you know, I know that that resonates with me, James, and, and you and I have spoken about this privately, that when my ex-husband took his life and I had two careers, you know, my my private medical practice and my work as a medical correspondent here at ABC, uh, and two children that I had to keep it together for, Mm. um, I found that my purpose as a healer, uh, you know, which fundamentally most people in medicine are Mm. uh, at their core, was really, really helpful in my own healing um, you know, and obviously there there was very private healing that had to go on as well, but that my purpose in, uh, you know, helping my children heal and recover and helping so many whose lives have been affected by suicide has been really, really helpful for me. But what if someone is struggling with finding a purpose? What what advice would you give them? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> um, I mean, I wish I had all the answers Look, I've got a I've I've got a very close friend at the moment who is who's going through exactly that and it's been hard for me because I see in this person a an incredibly in, beautiful human being and they don't see it in themselves and it's a really difficult thing to try to get in someone's head to explain to them the way that they see themselves is not how other people see them. Mm. And this person says that they don't have direction in their life, that they, 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 they don't understand what they're here for. You know, that is a huge marker. If someone says to you, I don't, I, I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what it's for, which is literally a quote from, from this friend. That's a worry, right? Because right. that's the, that's the person saying, I don't need to be here anymore. And right. for me, that was really heartbreaking. And f- for this person, the, 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 the answer has been to find the strength to change something significant in their lives. And they've just moved abroad. So like, you know, I think you can shake it up pretty dr- dramatically. Find the, find the courage to shake things up. If you're not happy with something, then you've, you've got to make that change. But it's so hard to say to someone, find the strength within yourself because right. the whole reason is, the whole thing is that you've lost that strength within yourself. You know, I think we have such a stigma, um, not just in the U.S., but obviously in the U.K. and I'm sure in many, many countries in the world, we have such a stigma about mental illness. And I think mm. part of it comes from, you know, if you can't see something um, or if you can't take a test, you know, like an X-ray or a CAT scan or a blood test, it somehow is less legitimate mm. uh, or less real 
than if someone has, you know, a, a broken leg yeah. or cancer or heart disease. But with mental illness, it's somehow not as straightforward. And I think part of that bias or stigma comes, unfortunately, from the medical community. Part of it comes from society. Part of it comes from the person, ironically, who needs the help. Yeah. They feel like they should just be able to suck it up. Do, mm. do, I mean, well, totally. And you, you come a from a very thing. suck it up culture. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, we Brits stiff up a lip. That's what they say. Yes. And, you know, very much, very, very much so. And I think it's not even a generational thing. You know, people uh, my age as well, you know, that's that's very much something which people feel here that you've just got to get on with it, that it's part of hard work, you know, that, that you know, millennials now, they've never had it so easy and they've, they should just kind of stop complaining. I think there's those messages that we send to young people particularly are not healthy and they, and they happen here in the UK. Yeah, culturally, we have a big problem in the UK with just kind of, bor you know, letting things... Uh, letting things fester. You know, in this country, suicide is the single biggest killer of men under the age of 45. I that mean, that's is staggering. Insane. Bigger than, you know, uh, heart disease from right. smoking, bigger than car accidents. You know, just it's insane. And yet we decide that it's a lesser problem, that we have a we have successive governments who believe that, you know, uh, funding Physical health care is more important than funding mental health care. It's counterintuitive, of course, because one thing can lead sure. to the other. And it's, for, you know, on a purely economic basis. But, you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, my dad came from a Scottish background, which is like even, you know, stiff up a lip in the UK. I mean, you're, you're talking like an entire body just rigid in Scotland. <laughs> and, you know, they don't talk about emotions, not in his family anyway. And that was a huge, huge problem because they can't, let this 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 really important thing out i think there were similar uh, stigma against things like uh, i think in women breast cancer mm -hmm. you know that that in time people have got over and if only people could see it in the same way and that's the reason why i talk about it publicly because like i don't want my father's death to be for nothing i don't want him to have died and for us not to have learned any lessons and so for him i want to be able to say to him Look, you didn't die for nothing, and and people can learn from from this example. But hopefully, it's not going to keep happening because it's just so tragic. James, was your father the type of person who was uh, comfortable showing affection, and you know, talking about maybe not with himself, but with you? Do you do you have any memories of him being either physically affectionate to you or verbally demonstrative with his feelings to you? He was, but he couldn't be a real father because such was the the level of his of his illness. I mean, he was a, he was schizophrenic, which is another level. I mean, he wasn't at times really functioning. He would have, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what schizophrenia is, I mean, you you can you go into episodes and you 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 hallucinate. You hear voices. You hear sounds. Um, and you sometimes see different visions. And that's what he went through. But in the moments where he was lucid. Yes, I mean, some of the most important memories I have are, are of him and me together. I used to go everywhere on his shoulders all around London. We would go on long walks. I have memories of sitting on our roof at home making paper airplanes. You know, he was someone who desperately wanted to to show affection and emotion, but there was something in him which was stopping him from doing it. Um, and for him, you know, we just talked about mental versus physical health. It was physically... Um, limiting for him his mental illness was limiting him physically and so you know the poor guy had a really tough time explaining 
what was going on with him. And it was all about him just being feeling totally isolated. And for that reason, yeah, you, he would have affectionate moments, but then he would recoil back into himself and I wouldn't see him for, you know, weeks or sometimes months on end. How do you, James, um, and remind me, you were how old when he died? I was nine. You were nine. Mm. So how have you gone through, you know, the early part of your life and all of the milestones and accomplishments and ups and downs that, you know, people normally go through uh, without a father um, and with a mother who battles mental illness as well? Mm-hmm. How, how has that been for you just as a person? You know, the, how do you deal with the sadness of experiencing things, getting awards and wanting to share it with your father and him not being there? Uh, sadness, I've got to tell you. Jen, I've been sad. Like my life, I've been very sad to not have him around and to share these things. And I've been sad to have to do things alone. I've had to do a lot of stuff alone. And that is really difficult. And I think I've I've understood my depression better through understanding just how much time I have spent alone in my life. Um, I'm an only child. And my mother, I was sent to boarding school when I was eight years old which was the best decision my mother could have made because I've made friends for life at that school but basically emotionally I brought myself up and it's been a it's been a it's been a tough ride but but I made a decision subconsciously I think to to do all the things that my dad couldn't do to be the person my father would have loved to have been because he was so creative he was a he was an artist he was a very talented artist he was so funny he had he was beautiful he had like richard gear silver hair mm. um and you know when he died i remember when i was in my sort of teens and we had a family friend who we'd lost touch with and i i was actually the one to tell her that he had died and i think i was only about 13 and she looked at me shocked she said oh my god i i had no idea he just seemed he seemed such a different person to me and when you get those glimpses of who the person was and wanted to be and then but they couldn't that's what's really heartbreaking so for me over the last well all my life as long as I could remember I've just tried to be the person I think he would have wanted and to do things that he would have wanted to do and be the person he would have wanted to have been and that's made me stronger really because it's that goes back to that thing of not wanting their death to be in vain Mm -hmm. and so yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a tough thing. I'm I'm really interested in the whole in the whole debate between nature and nurture. If why is it that I've dealt with something differently to how my father dealt with it and why is the knowledge of his death motoring me forward in a way which to another person it might stop them right. in a roadblock. I'm fascinated by that too, James. And you know, when I was in London uh, in October of 2018, and uh, you and I uh, saw each other, and I introduced you to my daughter, Chloe, who's 19, yeah. <laughs> um, and studying Arabic, by the way. So oh, yes, that's you're, right. You're her she idol on multiple levels. <laughs> um, and yes, she's, and, and then of course, she fell in love with your city of London and uh-huh. announced that it's so much better than New York. Yeah. Um, well, she has, she's, she's obviously very intelligent. <laughs> I think so. And, you know, she um, was very involved and um, a big reason for my writing um, my book, Life After Suicide, um, about not just our story um, with how suicide affected our lives, but 
I interviewed about 10 other people who shared their stories as well. And what you just said, it, it's, it's unbelievable because it's almost verbatim words that she uses. I, I just, as a mother, I'm concerned that every major happy event in her life will somehow be marred by that pain and sadness. So, I mean, what, what advice do you have for her or anyone who is going through what you and she are going through? I mean, it's, it's tough, isn't it? Count your blessings. I mean, she has a mother in you who is phenomenal. So there are plenty of people. I mean, the more you get to know, the more you, the more you live, the more you learn how privileged you are. Mm -hmm. And she will, as an intelligent young lady, know that as she gets older and she marks these, these big seminal moments in her life. And yeah, sure. She's going to look around her at various different moments her first big job her first apartment all these things and we'll go and just think oh i wish my dad was here or see or see her friends with their parents that's what for me was really tough to see my friends with their parents and this right. kind of happy family ideal which everyone else seemed to live and i wasn't living um yeah i'm not gonna lie that was really really hard and i think it will be hard for her but she sounds like someone who can take hardness and turn it into strength and that is that is such a gift and actually it's it has armed me for life my father's death has armed me in with strength for life in a way that had he not died i may not have had and so just to just to be conscious of that is i think the most the most valuable thing and it sounds like she already is so i hope so james yeah i i want to thank you for you know connecting with her on that level uh, almost immediately, which I, I think really meant a lot to her. But, you know, that brings me to the issue of community. Do you feel like it's helpful, you know, when you meet someone and you learn that they've suffered the suicide of a loved one, that, you you know, it's almost like speaking the same language in terms of connecting with that person? I think so, because for lots of people, suicide is a selfish act committed by someone who didn't love you enough and even if it's unsaid that's how I think some people see it who haven't experienced it and so when you meet someone who has experienced it who knows that that isn't the case who understands that actually for the person who did it it was actually the probably the most selfless thing they could think of that is that's a it's a it's there's a bond there which you don't which, which you only realize exists when you meet the person. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an important thing to remember that, you know, this isn't something which, you know, people choose to do uh, to, 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 to kind of spite anyone else. It's, it's an intensely personal thing. You know, the number of times you hear people say suicide is so selfish, that really upsets right. me. Same. And Same. so when you meet someone else who's gone through it, they know that and... There's an awkwardness also around it, which is dissipated when people, when people talk about suicide. Thanks so much to James for being so open and vulnerable with us today. I think it's a good reminder that everyone has something they're dealing with. James just spoke about the trouble he had finding help when he needed someone to talk to. Here in the United States, we have an amazing free resource, the National Prevention Suicide Lifeline. Non-judgmental, trained crisis counselors are available 24-7. And my next guest is the director, Dr. John Draper. 
Before we get into the specifics, how did you get into this field? I, mean, I kind of stumbled into it like many of us do. You know, when I was a, a kid, I, uh, I, I wanted to be a psychologist. I know that sounds like, God, he must have had a messed up childhood if that's what he wanted. <laughs> did you? You know, it wasn't so much that as it was, um, I, I also wanted to be a pirate before that. Also, and then a, a, a baseball player, and that wasn't going to work out. Right. So as I learned about helping people, I thought, well, you know, this just felt natural for me. And I didn't know you could get paid for it. When I found that out, it got me very excited. So um, I just was on that trajectory. And then one day I found myself working in my first job on a mobile crisis team, which goes into people's homes, in, in this case in Brooklyn, New York. And it was a revelation because I'd, I'd been – I'd worked in hospitals. I'd worked in, in – in, outpatient units and, and clinics, and, and, and I had no idea that, that you could actually go into people's homes and care for them. And, and when I started doing that, I realized, you know, this is such a, a rare thing that these mobile crisis teams going into people's homes were unwilling and unable to get care. And the reason that they're mostly unable and unwilling is because they were too sick to be able to go to a clinic. If, if someone, Jen, said, if you're really depressed – Hey, you need to go to a clinic on Tuesday at nine. You can't even get out of bed. It's it's like asking a putting a, a, a spinal cord injury clinic at, at the top of the stairs. So when I realized that what we were doing was going into people's lives and into their homes and helping them get better, so they could go to a clinic, I realized that our mental health system really wasn't built for the people it was designed to care for. So it it really kind of made me determined to do something different. And uh, and then I was asked to start uh, the New York City's first crisis hotline, which goes into people's homes. And it, it allowed me to reach so many more people. And so aside from having a private practice, to me, uh, bringing care to people to make it easier for them to get it when, where, and how they want it, as opposed to waiting remotely in a doctor's office and hoping they'll show up, seems to me to be the, be the best way to bring mental health care into people's lives. I couldn't agree more. And now you're you're a mental health doctor. I'm a physical doctor, but we have a saying which you just described perfectly. You know, and I say this a lot to people: first responders see things and have to deal with things in an out of hospital setting that most doctors and nurses can't even fathom. And your story really reminded me that that's kind of the mental health analogy, if you will, of that, right? So, you know, you see a very different picture in a clinic or in a private office or in a hospital or in a psyche ER than you saw at people's homes. So how did that change you? Because it, it must have been really shocking and upsetting when you first saw how in crisis these people were in their own environment. To the contrary, Actually, really? um, to me, when you walk into people's lives in their home, uh, you immediately see the impact of their illness um, on their lives. And you also see what's important to them. And you also see the people who are living with them who are important to them, who might be making it harder or better for them in, in the long run. And so what you learn by walking into their homes in their lives uh, might take you six months to learn in a doctor's office. And when a person's in crisis, they're on the floor, you have nowhere to go but up. So in working with them in, in an environment where they felt safe, not coming into my office where I felt safe, right. uh, they were much, it was much more of an, an engaging situation where I could immediately get on their side 
and help them and their family get better. And so I saw immediately how crisis intervention can can improve people's lives. So I, I felt hopeful every day. That's amazing. I want to get to the crisis hotline because it's such an unknown for me. Um, as you know from reading my book, Life After Suicide, when my ex-husband died by suicide, out of the blue, no warning signs, uh, he jumped off the George Washington Bridge, which had subsequently now, thank goodness, put up suicide nets um, a few months after he died. There are signs all over the George Washington Bridge, call for help, your life matters, uh, as there are on many bridges. What does it take to get someone to act on those signs or to pick up the phone and call your crisis hotline? And then walk us through, if you can, what those conversations are like, because it seems just inconceivable that someone on the floor, as you say, or close, uh, in that much pain could talk to a complete stranger that could actually say or do things that could save that person's life? Mm-hmm. You know, this, those are great questions. In some ways, it might take a model, somebody to, you know, here's how it's done. Let me make the call for you. Or hearing stories about people making, making calls. Uh, once you have somebody modeling the behavior for you, it, it seems more possible. There was a, a, a song that came out, one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five by a hip hop hip hop artist named Logic that yeah. became a an international hit and the song really modeled how to call the line and sure enough we got a huge increase in calls. You probably have heard the the term restrict access to lethal means, which is make it harder for people to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so putting a barrier on the bridge is the best way to keep people from killing themselves. We also believe the flip side of that is promote access to life-saving means, making it as easy for a person to pick up help as it would be to pick up a gun. So if you have, for example, right next to you a phone or wherever you are, a cell phone, then help is available to you. So the more we have public awareness of what happens when you call the line and the effectiveness of the help when you call the line, it's free 24-7. And typically you're routed to the center in the network that's nearest to you. And these are all people who have been trained to not only help people who are suicidal, but to just listen and care. Uh, my daughter has, has her own history of anxiety and depression, and I asked her recently about this this proposition that uh, has come up in Congress about potentially making our hotline number a three-digit number. And I, I said, what do you think about that idea? And she said, well, Dad – I think it would do more than anything to erase the stigma against mental illness in this country. And I said, why is that? And she said, because we have a three-digit number for, for medical emergencies. If we had one for psychological emergencies, people would know that psychological emergencies are real and they require a different response, not cops or an ambulance, but a caring voice. And that's right. And that's what we have on the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You know, you talked about first responders earlier. These are the real heroes, uh, not me sitting here, but the people answering those phones uh, who run into these psychic burning buildings every day and sit with a person on the phone, hold their hand, help them feel understood and connected and cared about and pull them out of that burning building every day. And they truly are the heroes. But when you are talking to someone that you think might be – critically depressed um, or suicidal, you ask them, 
have you had thoughts of hurting yourself or killing yourself? And I always say to people when I talk about this, people, lay people, parents, friends, should not be afraid to ask those questions because as we're taught, you, you're not giving someone an idea. And if someone is suicidal, they will answer you honestly, correct? And so this isn't like you don't have to whisper it. You don't have to dance around it, beat around the bush, you know, refer to it in other ways. What is the right thing to do? I mean, other than talk, right? I'm sure you're going to say talk, 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 talk. Here's what I think is really important, though. I mean, as a dad who's got a daughter who's had her own issues, uh, I remember one day um, she was going through a really critical time. And, and I walked into the computer room and she was sitting there and I said, honey, what are you doing? And she said, uh, just something. And I said, can you show me what it is? And she said, sure. I sat down and she was, she had constructed a PowerPoint of her pain. Every, wow. every slide as she went through it. And I was just as a, as, a, as her dad, just just break, my heart was breaking with every slide that would pass through, and 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 I and I you know, I mean I've been I'm a, I'm a therapist I'm right. I'm a you know I'm a suicide prevention expert but here's my daughter going through this I'm a dad, uh-huh. and I reminded myself the one thing that I could do, that no therapist could do, was say this that, honey I love you. I'm so sorry you're going through this, but I want you to know you're never going to have to go through this alone. And a therapist can't say that. Yeah. And Jen, those are life-saving words that parents can say. They don't have to fix the problem. They just need to know, they just need to let their kid know that they're there for them. They're going to help them get more care, treatment. They're there to listen to them and understand them. But more than anything, they don't have to be alone. Right. That... What a story, John. What a story. So it's a perfect segue into, you touched on it, what do you say? What do you do? The, the training that we have in medical school, as you know, is um, when you are talking to someone that you think might be critically depressed um, or suicidal, you ask them, have you had thoughts of hurting yourself or killing yourself? And then I'd like you to take our listeners through then what do you do? Because even as a professional, if someone answers in the affirmative, that is terrifying, right? So let's take a layperson or even a friend, a teenager, if they ask a friend and they say, listen, I've been thinking of X, Y, or Z, what do they do to walk us through that? So, so the, that's, you've just named the, the first two steps and what we're, we have a, a, a website that's attached, attached to the lifeline called the be the one com, which is, you know, we're trying to explain to the, to everybody that there's things that everyone can do, um, that actions that they can take that can reduce the chance that someone's going to kill, kill themselves and things we know that save lives. So the first was you said, yes, ask directly. And the second one is keep them safe. But this third one, what do you do when they talk about it? It's how you are with them. Um, it's what our third step is what we call be there, and and this is um, could not be more important. Um, it, it's because I you know we're so scared, and if when somebody says that they're thinking about right. killing themselves, I mean it's natural to say no, you can't. 
And or that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I'm either <laughs> going to diminish it because I don't believe it, um, or I can't believe it, or I don't know what to do about it. So I'm going to try and minimize it in some way, or not. Or you're just manipulating me, or I'm not going to take it seriously. You ask people who are suicidal, how is it that you want people to treat you? And the, and what the surveys have shown is that one, treat it seriously. Really believe that I am in such pain that I'm thinking about killing myself. So that's really important. Take it very seriously. But secondly, listen non-judgmentally. Now that's hard mm-hmm. because you know I'm thinking suicide is not an option for you. So what what people who are suicidal are asking you to do is listen to their pain. Listen and try to understand what they're going through. And that's really hard. It's really hard to sit there and not want to fix that. Mm-hmm. It's like watching, you know, somebody bleed and say, no, I've got to stop you bleeding. So, but, but interestingly, the way to help stop the bleeding is to listen and to say things like, you know, after I'm hearing what you're saying, I can see why you're in such pain. And, and let them know that you not only understand them, but say the kinds of things that I was just saying about my daughter is that, you know what, I can see the pain you're in and you just... You don't have to go through this alone. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you help. I feel the momentum building. Life After Suicide is reaching so many people. It may be because of the brave people coming on here and sharing their stories. So I want to thank Dr. Draper and James Longman for joining me this week and to you for subscribing and leaving reviews and for sharing our conversation. It means a lot. Please keep the conversation going online. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at DRJ Ashton. Next week, we're going to talk about the responsibility of popular culture and how the media covers suicide. Do you have any idea why he did this? To John. To John. Our guests will be DJ Nash, the creator of the ABC drama A Million Little Things, and Dr. Barbara Von Dahlen, a therapist who consults with the writers of the show to make sure it's accurate. Please remember, you're not alone. The Prevention Hotline is open 24-7, and it's free. Just dial 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. Trained counselors are available to talk to anyone who needs help. I want to thank the Life After Suicide team that helps put this podcast together. Eric Strauss, Ann Reynolds, Tara Gimble, Trevor Hastings, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kalb, and everyone at ABC News who's been so supportive of Life After Suicide. Thanks for taking this journey with us. We'll see you back here next week on Life After Suicide.